0: Our message this morning comes from uh, Daniel chapter 6. Uh, the reality is that's probably the best known story in all of the book of Daniel, isn't it? That uh, we understand Daniel and the lion's den. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me for a while, I figured that was pretty much the only story in Daniel. And uh, then I was able to read it and see all the rest of what God was showing. So we're going to go ahead and read this whole uh, passage uh, first off this morning. And then we'll uh, walk through and uh, consider the message God has for us. Daniel 6 verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to... Point him over the entire kingdom then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, "We'll not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king... Establish the injunction and signed the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that this is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and he and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. When he came, had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O king, I've committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, And they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. For his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that this is not just a, a, a story, a myth, a fable, but Lord, this truly happened in the lives of these individuals. And we thank you that you're a faithful God. Would you be faithful now and guide our meditation as we think about this passage and as we face the reality that we will also face opposition in this world much as Daniel did? And God, we pray that your spirit will enable us to believe and to follow what you show us from this passage and that you, by the work of your spirit, will change our lives. Father, we pray also for our children in Sunday school and ask that you would indeed work in their hearts, help the teachers to teach each child, and to remind them of who you are, and may our kids trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, this is just a, a, a very familiar story we're, we're, we've we've read through it. It's in virtually every children's uh, Bible story book that you find. We we know what's going on. Uh, one of the things that was neat about uh, the church in Lander. One of the men there is an artist, and uh, he has in the sanctuary a painting of, of Daniel and the lion's den. And it's just a beautiful painting, and it's just something that we're familiar with. But we don't always take a lot of time to to meditate on it, particularly within the context uh, that we see in the whole book of Daniel, which is to build God's kingdom while living in man's. Remember, this is a, a new kingdom for Daniel. We looked last week at the the change uh, from uh Babylon over to the Medo-Persian Empire and uh from uh, Belshazzar to now Darius is the new king and and uh, all this is has changed and even in the midst of this change Daniel finds himself facing opposition right it appears that the opposition comes from nothing but jealousy and the recognition that the king saw the gifts that Daniel had, saw that Daniel was rising up and was going to be given even more authority and the people around him were jealous of that and, and they sought to uh, destroy him, to, to get rid of him so that they might be able to have the power to themselves. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? That's kind of uh, what we see today as well. But I think it's important for us as we're looking at this idea of, of trying to build God's kingdom while living in man's that we will have to do that while facing opposition. I want to look at a, 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 just a, a brief walk through the Bible as it talks about the opposition that we face as Christians. The first mention of it is actually at the, um, right after the fall, and that's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And God mentions it not in speaking to Adam and Eve, but in speaking to Satan. He says to the the devil, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And there's this promise that there's going to be this enmity. There's going to be this conflict. There's going to be this opposition in this world. And it's not just between the woman and Satan, but it's between the the offspring, the followers of Satan and the followers of the woman. That is the the offspring of the woman. That is believers in, in Jehovah will be in opposition with those who are not. And there's going to be this conflict. And we see one of the first manifestations of it in the very next chapter, in chapter 4 of Genesis, in verses 3 through 5 and verse 8. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And so I want to recognize what's happening is Cain and Abel both brought offerings to God and God accepted Abel's but not Cain's. And so what happened to Cain? He became very angry. And if you remember in uh, uh, Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that if we have anger in our heart toward our brother or hatred in our heart toward our brother, we've already murdered him. That we find that uh, there was this murderous intent inside him. So even now, at the very beginning, Because Cain did not bring an offering with faith. And we read that in Hebrews, that that's why his was not uh, accepted. He didn't have faith, but Abel did. And there became this conflict. There was opposition. And the result of it we see in verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And here's the first manifestation of that opposition, that Abel found himself facing opposition for what? What had he done wrong? He had believed God, and his worship was found acceptable to God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, as Jesus is in uh, Caesarea Philippi, the place where um, uh, Peter is given that great confession of faith, where he says, "...who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I am?" He says, "...thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God." Um, And that recognition that that's who he was and jesus turns to him and and points out uh, the wisdom of that and he says in verse 18 I also say to you that you are peter Upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hades will not overpower it." Even as jesus is talking about building his church this this first promise that he is going to build his church You see the context is one in which we've got conflict Even in the midst of the building of the church. He says there's going to be opposition it's not going to just be smooth sailing and be easy, but people are going to oppose us as Christians seeking to build the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself gives us an example of, of living in the midst of, of such opposition. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, "'For you have been called for this purpose "'since Christ also suffered you for you, "'leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps.'" I'm going to just stop for a moment. We're going to continue reading on, but I don't want us to, to miss this point. Some of you have maybe read the book In His Steps, and if not, you, everybody uh, in the universe has seen the WWJD uh, bracelets, and, and they were just ubiquitous for a time, and it's What Would Jesus Do? And that comes from the book In His Steps. The book In His Steps was based on this verse of walking in Jesus' steps, And it's the one place that we find in the Bible in particular where it's telling us that we are to follow Jesus' example. That Jesus, he isn't just an example for us, he's a savior for us, but he is also an example. And specifically, we are are commanded in this verse to follow him. And look at the context in which we're to follow his example. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And you see the example that Jesus gives to us in the face of opposition, that he did not go against that opposition as the way we might, as as the way that we would be told the wise way of dealing with the opposition that comes against you is to fight back and to decimate any opposition that comes against you. Jesus didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He entrusted himself to his father the one who judges righteously. This is the example that has been given to us as his people of how we are to face opposition. Earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter commands us these words. He said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I don't know if I've ever seen a a, a verse in the Bible that summarizes a Bible story as clearly as that verse summarizes Daniel chapter 6, doesn't it? I mean, it's just exactly, keep your behavior so excellent among the Gentiles that in the very thing that they slander you as an evildoer, they may, on account of your good deeds as they see them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't that precisely what we see taking place in Daniel chapter 6? That's how we as believers are to face Opposition. Let's look a little bit more at some of the principles that we see from Daniel chapter 6 as we, we see Daniel living out before this command is even given, this command from 1 Peter chapter 2. How do we face opposition? We do so, first of all, by developing personal integrity. By developing personal integrity. There are not many places where... Uh, individuals in the Bible tell us about their peers who also write books of the Bible. You know what I mean by that? But Daniel is one of those. Ezekiel, who's a peer of Daniel, okay, he prophesied, uh, started prophesying a little bit after Daniel had gone into... uh, Uh, Babylon and he ended before they came back and so Ezekiel probably wrote the words that we're going to read here long before Daniel 6 ever occurred and as he would consider the life of Daniel this is what he had to say about Daniel he's talking to someone else in Daniel 28 verse 3 but he begins to tell us what his perspective of Daniel was he says in verse 3 behold you are wiser than Daniel there's no secret that is a match for you this is that, uh, a, a taunt that he's bringing to a leader of Tyre. And he's telling him, oh, so this is who you? You're even wiser than Daniel? Come on, right? I, I'm sure that it's, it's probably not actually in the Hebrew. but the, the sense is there. Can't you see it? It's like, are you wiser than Daniel? Daniel, his peer, he uses an example of absolute wisdom. That Daniel knows all secrets. You're, you're not a match for him. And this is Daniel's peer. Who has this to say? Then in chapter 14, he had previously said this in verse 14 of chapter 14. He says, Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. As Ezekiel wants to give a list of the righteous men that he knows about in biblical history, look at where he goes. He goes to Noah. And we recognize that Noah was righteous. We, we say, the Scripture tells us that about Noah. We, we we see that he was righteous and he preached the gospel in a, in a wicked time. And and uh, he's laid out there. Job is told to us in the beginning and the end of the book of Job that he's blameless before God, that he's this righteous man. And then the, I'm sure that the, the 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 legend of these men among the people of God was well known. They were aware of how righteous they were. And as he takes these two pillars of righteousness, he adds a contemporary, and lifts him up as an individual, oh yeah, and Daniel, and you all know Daniel. He's walked among us, and it catches their attention, and and, and maybe in in our day, the the closest we may have faced is is Billy Graham, right? A person who, if we were talking about the righteous individuals of our day, Billy Graham's name is going to come up early and often, as an individual who stands out with that type of of clout. But this is an individual recognized that Ezekiel wrote these things about him, not just his opinion, but this is the inspired word of God. This is what God has to say about Daniel. This is the reputation that Daniel had long before chapter 6 occurs, long before Darius took over Babylon. This was the character of Daniel. What that I think tells us is, we need to develop integrity before the opposition comes. If we try after it raises all kinds of questions and loses its power, we have to begin before people come against us to be men and women, young people of integrity. well let's under, seek, seek to understand integrity for just a moment. you know what what is Integrity. Um, Webster's offers the definition. Strict compliance to an ethical standard. And really, there, there are two definitions here, and I want to look at them both and then see how they, they interact with one another, and they're really the same idea. A strict compliance to an ethical standard. That's the first way that we think about um, integrity, right? An individual who they have a moral standard, and they stand by that, and, and they don't sway from that moral ethical standard. And that's the, the first way that we look at it. Well, this is important we look at it from the, the second element, which is the state of being whole or sound. And at first glance, we may say, well, that's like two totally different things, isn't it? But it's not at all. We might talk about the integrity of a building, right? That it's able to stand. It's, 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 it's a whole, it's a unified uh, oneness. An ethical stance that complies to a standard makes us a, an ethical whole it gives us ethical soundness and it's that idea both of those that I want us to think about when we think about the integrity to develop in ourselves R.C. Sproul in his book The Holiness of God and, and I, w- I want to be honest first time I ever thought of the idea of integrity was listening to a series of sermons on the holiness of God by Sproul and listening to him deal with Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah uh, sees the Lord lifted up and in the temple. And his response is, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord exalted. He's just undone. And Sproul takes some time to to meditate on, on the meaning of undone. And he says, to be undone means to come apart at the seams, to be unraveled. What Isaiah was expressing is what modern psychologists describe as the experience of personal disintegration. To disintegrate means exactly what the word suggests, disintegrate. To integrate something is to put pieces together into a unified whole, when schools are integrated, children from two different races are placed together to form one student body. The word integrity comes from this root, suggesting a person whose life is whole or wholesome. You see the, the idea and this, he's, he's able to take these two ideas that Webster presents and bring them together that they become this one definition That all of these ideas are combined in the same concept of what integrity is. It is to live as a unified whole. One of our struggles in our life is we're very segmented in our lives, right? We wrestle with being a unified whole. We wrestle with, first off, consistency. Our inconsistency breaks up that unified whole. It breaks up our integrity. The fact that we have different hats that we wear and we actually almost become different people as we put on each of the hats destroys our personal integrity. And here we're invited to have this unified whole that is to be a part of our lives that that links us all together. Think of these Biblical descriptions that I think help us to understand what this unified whole is to be. And the first comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and a matter of fact, even in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter five and verse eight. Jesus says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." I think purity and integrity are, are very closely related. What is pure gold? It's gold that has nothing in it but gold, right? It's not an alloy in any way. Everything that is not gold has been removed from it. Pure water is just that pure hydrogen and oxygen. Every time I say that with chemistry around, I'm like, right? Okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> You'd think it would be simple, however. But, but, so we get vitamin water, right? Vitamin water, by definition, is not pure water, right? because we've added something to it it's no longer pure and Jesus is saying blessed are the pure in heart those hearts that are singular get it you see those hearts that have integrity they will see God what is that point of integrity in the pure heart well it's shown by that which brings about that blessing what, what is the blessing? What does the pure in heart want more than anything else? But to see God, the pure in heart, is the heart that wills one thing, and that is God Himself. That God no longer is the greatest of my desires. He is my only desire. He is no longer the most important thing in my life. He's the only thing in my life. That's the pure in heart. That is the beginning of integrity. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-five. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. I know it's slightly different... Uh, memorized it in an earlier version of the new american standard sorry whom have i in heaven but thee and besides thee i desire nothing on earth that integrity of heart is such that my desires in heaven are matched by my desires on earth it isn't that oh i love for god in heaven but on earth i want my family or i want my job or i want my success or i want my money no 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 it's all the same i want god in heaven he's all that i want in heaven and he's also all that i want here He's everything. And that integrity of heart becomes the way in which we're able to to manifest the entire integrity of our lives. The same heart is seen in Psalm chapter 17 and verse 15 where the psalmist writes of his greatest desire, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness. When I awake, what gives the psalmist satisfaction? It's God. He has that integrity of heart, that integrity of desires, which is essentially the same thing that the apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, "For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." The idea of to die is more of the same, just even more of Christ. I want to read a little bit, even from a, a secular writer, um, Ayn Rand, wrote this, just to, to finalize this, this concept of what integrity means. She writes, And what, incidentally, do you think integrity is? The ability not to pick a watch out of your neighbor's pocket? No, it's not as easy as that. Integrity is the ability to stand by an idea. The ability to stand by an idea. What's that idea that we stand by? That I'm going to stand here and I'm not going to budge. The idea that even Daniel stood by and would not budge. The idea that the three Hebrew children stood by and would not uh, budge. I think it's summarized in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I'm going to stand by that. And then when I'm invited to worship another God, I say, no, Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to stand here and I will go nowhere else. This is what I will build my life on. This will be my point of integrity. This will be the focal point around which the entirety of my life rotates. Understanding integrity, we need to order our life to order our life. I found that philosophies are difficult for us to live by. Um, I frequently will look at a, a church and uh, will read their philosophy of ministry um, as I go to their website. And I want to see what is that philosophy of ministry. And I've, and I've had many relationships with, with pastors and with church planters. And one of the things that I've seen that it's difficult for us to do is to actually then live out the philosophy that we state. We say, here's our philosophy, and very frequently we find ourselves completely compromising that philosophy and walking in in ways that that philosophy completely undermines. Because it's difficult for us to live according to a philosophy. We tend to, to live more according to the pressures of the moment. But to be able to have that integrity, I've got to begin to live according to a singular purpose. And what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As I begin to have this purpose, and I want to have a purpose, and my philosophy is going to drive me as to how to accomplish that purpose in my life. I develop virtues to accomplish this purpose. The, the, the virtues that I want to, to draw upon. I want to have us look at uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, and see the virtues that were present in Daniel's life that led him to what was going on. Daniel 6.4, we read, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find grounds of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was, first of all, faithful. The first virtue that he developed and we should develop is faithfulness. That is, to be individuals that you can count upon, right? That we can be counted upon that we accomplish that which needs to be done and we are faithful to the words that we have said, particularly the words when we take our vows of membership and our commitment to follow after Jesus Christ, right? That they're not simply words, but they are words that guide us and we are faithful to those words. And we are faithful to the idea that we stand beside that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second that we see uh, uh, virtue is that he was careful. It says, Inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence was to be found in him. No negligence. Negligence. Even the, the Proverbs talk to us about, uh, like, like, smoke in the eyes is to send an unfaithful individual on a, on a, a path, right? And they, they just aren't even going to get it done. And, and it's just like, you might as well be blowing smoke in your eyes. It's just so uncomfortable. And the person who sends him just hates it because he's not able to trust in that. Because he's not careful to finish up what got started. But as we're careful so that we're not neglecting the things that need to be done. The counsel that was given by the great philosopher Thumper to Bambi. You've got to watch both ends at the same time, right? That's a part of that, that there's no negligence as we're being careful. And the third is that we're clean or corruption. There was no corruption found in him. I think one of the ways in which we completely destroy cynicism in our day is simply by eliminating the corruption in our own hearts. Isn't the heart of cynicism that I believe everybody else is corrupt? Right? Especially anybody with power is always corrupt. And I operate as though my suspicion is truth. If we simply live like, can we bring up a a Billy Graham? Silences the cynic. Nothing can be said. And that's where we're called upon. The cynicism of of these individuals was brought against uh, Daniel. They said, well, surely he's corrupt. Let's find it. And they begin looking. It's like, dang, there's no corruption in this guy. He's clean. And they had nowhere else to go except to attack his faith, which is the second element of ordering our life. Developing virtues is a part of that, but then what, what is it that allows me to develop virtues. I recently listened to a biography of uh, Benjamin Franklin and a uh, fascinating individual. <laughs> um, probably would have thought, well he's kind of a goofball when you get to know him in, in real life, but, but yet such a brilliant individual. And he decided when he was young that he was going to begin to put virtues in his life. And he, he established even these tablets by which he would, he would work on these virtues in order and get through all of them. And uh, I think four times a year, they'd go through these virtues and begin to, to, to work them into his heart. And yet when you look at the life of Benjamin Franklin, what you begin to see is you begin to look at some of these virtues and say, yeah, he compromised from time to time. Sometimes... He flat out just changed them and made them different. Why? Because he was trying to build these virtues in himself by his own strength. He had no relationship with Jesus Christ. He didn't have the Holy Spirit inside him. He said, this is what I'm going to do. He did a great job. A wonderful man, accomplished phenomenal things by his own strength, which is great. And yet we see that it, it wasn't able to make the real lasting change that Daniel was able to experience. What is it that empowered Daniel? Verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. We look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God. Notice this, as he'd been doing previously. He didn't change a thing. Why? Because the virtue that was built inside him had been built from a heart devoted to God. It was his devotion to God and the presence of God in his life that brought about the virtues in his life. The starting point isn't let me make myself better. The starting point is trusting in God to accept me and to change me. And that's where it begins, in our personal devotion toward the true and the living God. That is the wellspring of virtue. The wellspring of integrity. If we're going to face opposition, which we will, let me rephrase that, since we're going to face opposition, it is essential that we begin by developing that personal integrity, the personal integrity which begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we face opposition by standing in victory. God doesn't always close the lion's mouth, does he? The early part of the Christian era, the first century, shows us the the truth of that. As believers, one of the ways in which they were executed was by putting them in a coliseum and crowds would gather to watch wild beasts tear them up and eat them for the pleasure of those who would watch. That's opposition. God doesn't always close the lion's mouth, but God always, always provides victory. Do you know the name Polycarp? Polycarp was a disciple of Uh, the Apostle John. John, that disciple who wrote about the love of God like no one else, ministered to Polycarp. Polycarp became a a, a pastor, a shepherd, and was eventually arrested for his faith and was brought into the Colosseum. And the emperor said to him, he should deny Christ or he's going to bring in the wild beasts. To which Polycarp says, all right, Bring him in. In essence, saying, Well, lion's got to eat, right? And he's like, Not going to change anything. No big deal. He says, Deny deny Christ or I'm going to burn you at the stake. And then he gets a little bolder and he looks at the the emperor and he says, There's a fire that burns for eternity. I'm not afraid of the fires that are going to be extinguished in a short time. And saying to him, You need to repent because of your ungodliness. In the midst of his life being threatened, that's a stance that he takes. And then in the end, he gives that great, great statement that we'll, we'll see up here. He says, 86 years have I served him and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Amen. 86 years he'd walked with him. He wasn't afraid of the lion. He wasn't afraid of the fire. He said, I've served him this long. I'm going to keep on serving him. There's nothing you can do to take away from me the victory. The victory is yours, you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. It is certain. Stand in that victory. The victory is this. God will deliver you. Let's look at verse 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Can you imagine that from the voice of your executioner? He's about to throw him in to lions. I don't know. I guess when we were in Africa, we went on a, a safari. And our first night out, we got to see uh, lions. And there was a a, a large lion on the on the side of the road, and it was uh, about as far away from me as Brittany is. And we were there, and um, I decided, well, I'm going to take a picture. And so I took the camera, and I turned, only I didn't quite have it focused as I'm looking through the lens, and, the, and all of a sudden the lion wasn't there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's like... <gasps> You take the pictures, Robin. I'm just going to watch that and be sure it stays over there. <laughs> and, 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 and so he's about to throw Daniel into these lions. And what does he say to him? This, this pagan king, this king who, who was not yet a believer but I think became one, says to Daniel, your God will deliver you. Maybe with some tentative faith. Reminds me a little bit of the, the father who looked at Jesus and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. And that's the beginning of what we begin to see here. What a great declaration that that he makes. And then in verse 20, when he had come near to the, the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, maybe with a little less confidence, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? The answer is yes, right? God did deliver him. I had a friend uh, was involved in his uh, wedding, and um, he had been a, a, a drug addict, um, a heroin addict, had gone to uh, jail, had served some time, had uh, cleaned up his life, was, was doing well. Uh, had a good job. He was uh, had recently been married, was being a good father to her kids, and, and things were going well, and he was a roofer, and he fell, and he injured his back, and he was put on some painkillers, and uh, the prescription ran out, and he still felt the pain, and he went back to the heroin, and eventually uh, uh, took his life from an overdose. And he he spent, it was about a week in the hospital and I was in with him and his wife and prayed with him regularly. Um, And then he was gone. And I remember thinking at that time, God still wins. Todd is free from his addiction. Is that just a nice spin to put on something? Or is that truth upon which we can stand. His life didn't end. His body died, but he continued, and he's awaiting the day in which that body will be raised once again, and will be joined with his spirit once again. But he's now in the presence of God, and you know what? I'm convinced that he hadn't had any drugs in the last 20 years since I knew him and said goodbye to him. Because God set him free from that, from that addiction. This is truth. This is foundational truth. We understand that no matter what happens, had Daniel been eaten by the lions, he would have no longer had pain, right? He never would have had to deal with betrayal again, right? He would never have a broken relationship ever again. Death would no longer be able to touch him either, right? He would be in that perfect spot of victory, awaiting the even greater victory when his body is raised again. This is the truth that Daniel was able to have in his mind and to believe as he was tossed into that den filled with lions. The second victory is that God will justify you. Verse 22, Daniel says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. Notice what he said. Does that, did that catch you by surprise? Daniel's first concern wasn't whether or not he was innocent before the king. He didn't stand up and justify himself before the king. He didn't stand up and defend himself and say, See, king, I never did you any wrong. He stands up and says, I didn't violate the command of my God. I was found innocent before my God. And it isn't even that he didn't ever commit sin, but he said, I was found innocent before my God and you, the king. By the way, plus also. But the key issue was that he was found innocent before God. Westminster Shorter, Catechism, question 33 asks, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This justification that we experience is the same justification that Daniel experienced. It has two parts to it. The first is that he pardons all of our sins. So that we stand before God and as the accusations come against us, what is God's declaration? Forgiven. Because all of those sins were imputed to Jesus Christ and he paid the price so that we no longer bear the guilt of those sins. They're taken away completely and then he accepts us as righteous and his second declaration is, You are righteous. And Daniel knew that he stood before God with that, those declarations a reality in his life, for he knew that the righteous, the just, will live by faith. And he was living by faith. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, is one of the most beautiful illustrations of this in all of Scripture. As we meet Joshua the high priest. Now he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. The filthy garments were his sins that the devil was accusing him of. They were true. He had failed. The devil knew his sins and the devil was pointing out those sins. His accusations were accurate. And yet the angel of the Lord, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ, stands there and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Why? Because he's clothed in filthy garments. He's clothed in his sins. And then the angel says, He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, to Joshua, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. His sin is taken by the Lord Jesus Christ and I will clothe you with festal robes. If His dirty garments are His sins, what in the world are the festal robes? But the very righteousness of Jesus Christ... I love this part because to me it's like Zechariah just gets all into it. He's like, This is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. This is awesome. Then I said, uh, Let them put a clean turban on his head. It's like, He needs a hat. Give him a hat, right? I don't know if he's got a fashion sense or just a sense this will complete it, but he wants something on top of his head. Reminds me of the helmet of salvation. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a picture of justification. This is what Daniel was justified. He was found innocent before his God. Why was he innocent before his God? Because his God had taken away his filthy garments and had clothed him with festal robes and a turban. That's what he had done. What about you? Have your filthy garments been taken away yet? You know them. You know the sin you've committed. You know the sin in your heart. Has he taken those filthy robes? Have you been clothed with the righteous deeds of Jesus? You say, Pastor, how, how does that happen? The answer is, by turning to Jesus and asking him, very simply, will you forgive me because of what you did on the cross. And then resting in that forgiveness and saying, it's not my deeds that will save me. It's just Jesus and what He's done. Be certain today that you've given your filthy garments to Jesus and you've put on those those festal robes. That's the second victory. The first is that He'll deliver you. The second is that He'll justify you. And finally, He will use you. Look at verse 25-28. through 28. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people, nations, men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God And enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. It is a king who is writing these words. The king is not saying, My kingdom will be established, my kingdom is forever. But this king understands that he serves underneath the king of kings. And he says, His kingdom will stand forever. And it is he who delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He used Daniel more mightily than Daniel even thought, right? Daniel would turn and pray, facing Jerusalem, and pray for the peace of God's people and the expansion of the kingdom of God. Maybe he would pray the prayer of Jabez. I don't know. Bless me, O God. Expand my, enlarge my borders. Let your hand rest upon me and keep me from evil. Maybe. Regardless, as he's praying and he's asking for the expansion, and here it begins to expand, the message begins to spread that his God is the true God. And we may think, well, how's he going to use me? I remember a woman who started uh, attending our church years ago. Um, she wrestled with macular degeneration and could not see very well, had to quit driving. And we eventually saw her uh, lose her sight. And, uh, and she came to me shortly after her inquirer's class and said, Pastor, I can't become a member of the church because I don't know if I can serve in any way. I thought, what a heart. I said, well, you got something there. Let's pray. She came back the next week and says, I can become a member now, Pastor. Really? How are you going to serve? And she decided that she personally would begin to send birthday cards to everyone on their birthday. And she would handwrite them. One woman told me one time the only birthday card she got that year was not from any of her family or any of her friends, but from this woman, who never took the credit. She always signed it from the church. Tremendous. Did God use her? We know in that one woman's life, sure did, right? Let her know, you know, whoever else is in my life, I know this church loves me. And that gave her that hope and that encouragement. God can use you. We just live as though we believe it. I'm going to actually try to serve somehow. I'm going to find a way in which I can speak a word or be near to someone so that God's name might be praised. We're going to face opposition in this life. It's, it's, just, it's just a reality. And we can read a whole bunch of books on how do you face opposition. And some books will tell you you face opposition by attacking the, the person who opposes you, Right? If they're attacking you, you attack them even harder, and then you're going to win. You get on top, and then you're fine, right? And You're going to be all right. Another will say you deal with the, the, the opposition by defending yourself. Demonstrate. You don't need to get out. You need to prove how you're innocent of everything that they're trying to attack you about, and, and you begin to do that, and that's, that's how you're going to uh, deal with the opposition that's there. Others will say, well, you discredit the person who's attacking you, and then no one will listen to it because they're no good, and all of these are different strategies, and you know what? There are elements in which they can make you really successful in this world, right? But they're not the way that God teaches us as Christians to deal with the opposition, particularly the opposition that we face to our faith. Daniel shows us instead that to deal with the opposition that we're going to face, we need to first and foremost develop personal integrity. And secondly, we deal with the opposition by standing in victory. Let's pray. father thanks again we think of just it's it's easy and safe for us to think about daniel and to cheer him on and say yay daniel but he could smell the breath of the lions he had to be in that den all night long his faith had to be in an invisible god who would send invisible angels And yet you gave him such faith. Lord, we see the opposition rising around us in this world. We see Christianity being treated as the problem, not the solution. We honestly, we fear sometimes the day when we lose some level of the preferred status that we've experienced. And yet, O God, we believe that you will not bring the opposition greater than we can bear. And so we ask that you would strengthen us to face it. I pray for this congregation, O God, for each individual making up this church, that you will grant to us your grace to face the opposition well, with integrity, standing in your victory. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.